Um, Very much so. Roman. I'll tell you why later. Should we start this just right off by talking about your damaged balls? Sure. Context, everybody. Yes. Roman had a very healthy, happy, elective surgery a few days ago. It was. I, I had a hydroselectomy. Mm. And now we'll pause while everyone goes and Googles that. Get some horrible images. Gosh, um, that's... Um, <laughs> you really just went ahead and told him exactly what happened. Oh, yeah. yeah. I love it. Roman, you're an open book. You're an, <laughs> I'm an open wait, book. You're an open, ancient, dusty tome. Really. Yes. Well, actually, not dusty. That's Django. That's Django, yeah. Who is somewhere else right now. Uh, putting his ear to the ground, feeling the the, the currents of, of the universe, and probably fixing something that did or didn't need to be fixed, or something that he broke. Yeah, and trying so, to fix something else. So damn cute, though. Acceptable podcast, episode 152, the Bellingham, Washington premiere comic entertainment podcast, filled with lovely conversations uh, about comics, uh, about the comic shop that we all run and own together, or the comings and goings of our lives. That was my experiment in creating a slightly briefer intro. Join us for the next several weeks as we try and shorten the intro. Um, Total vision, just like, hey, anyway. Exactly. We're here, 152, <laughs> go. Um, I'm Jeff, and I'm really pumped that Roman's here, but I don't want him to be too pumped because I think the increased blood flow might <laughs> hurt the swelling. It, it may. I am I am, I am. am mildly and evenly pumped. Okay, very <laughs> good, very good. Uh, we're going to be talking about a handful of books this week, just the Roman and Jeff. Uh, we're pretty excited about it. love getting in a room with this guy, but we're going to tell you about what those books are that we're going to spoil so that you can look at the timestamps and the, the episode summary and you can skip anything that you don't want to be a part of. we got a big list of them today, so we're going to try and get through it all in a real succinct fashion. But succinct, succinct, but not without joy. Yes, not without some, some multi-level commentary and insight. But I always love a Roman and Jeff episode because, like I always say, it just reminds me of the first year of working at the store when it was just Roman and Jeff wasting time just <laughs> killing life um, but this week we're gonna be talking about x-men number one inferior five number two tales from the dark multiverse batman nightfall number one dun, dun, dun. the mask i pledge allegiance to the mask nightwing number 65 absolute carnage four metal men number one once in future number three and Batman number 81. That's a heavy, hot docket of books, Roman. Real hot lava. The hottest lava there could be. Hey, Roman. Yes? X-Men number one by Jonathan Hickman and Leniel Francis Yu. Mm-hmm. Before we get into this, can you tell me about your feelings on the end of House and Powers? Uh, I think it was maybe just Django and I that were on the last episode of the podcast, and that's what that was. Yeah, and what... What happened where, in where, that series, Jeff? Yeah, where were we? Yeah, what happened at the very end of that? Because it kind of summed up where the previous issue, the week before, <clears throat> summed up from a slightly different vantage point, just with all the mutants gathered on, in Krakoa land. Right. Um, 
that one ended kind of still on Krakoa land, but it was illustrating the, the futility of trying to uh, remain dominant over humans because the combination of humanity and technology will always evolve at a quicker or more rapid rate and decrease the uh, overall effectiveness of the human mutation that mutants are. Mm. So it, it's the very uh, pessimistic bummer viewpoint that they will always lose. They always lose. Mutants can't win. But we can't let people know that. So we're going to and in, in, in the face of that failure. We're always going to try. So that was kind of the ending point of House and Powers, along well, with some other Wait, things. the humans will always win or mutants will always win? Humans will always win. And mutants will always lose. And there's no, no, help, no use in even trying. Yeah, I'm not sure I understood the point that why would mutants always lose? Well, um, mutation allows for humans to have some advan advantage over humans, right? But when humans, like once technology gets to a certain point and humans start using technology to advance mm -hmm. themselves, um, mutants if it mutate in a linear fashion, whereas technology has an exponential right. fashion. Okay. So, um, yeah, while mutants are the most dominant species on the planet, that's really only for a small period of time. And then once technology gets advanced enough, humans can be bonding with that. The analogy I used last week on the podcast was like, you know, if the Flash was a mutant, and you're like Quicksilver is actually a mutant. So Quicksilver. Um, but with technology, we're able to travel by airplane. Which is to say, we're not able to run as fast as Quicksilver, but we created a thing that allows us to, you know, move pretty well as well. And bullet trains in Japan, and I bet in 50 years, 100 years, humans will have a way of instantaneously getting somewhere. Yeah. It's just transportation. That's a sort of really shallow way of saying that, like, technology plus humans is greater than mutation. And and they had to, they realized they needed to keep that a secret from all the mutants because. Without that, you know, there's no hope. Right. Hope. Right. Hope, hope, hope. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's what the phalanx wants to do is... Yeah. That all ties into their plan. Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, so, did you like House and Powers? I did. I did. It was it was a bunch of... Uh, like that was a bunch a very new idea in the whole overall mutant saga of the Marvel Universe. <clears throat> Unexplored territory. Um, I liked it. Yeah. Like so then, did you like X Men number one by Hickman and you? I did like this. It's it's not. I guess I. It's not. It's it's interesting. I guess I. Was, it wasn't all cause. It was down to earth, like a family story. Yeah. Which isn't what I was expecting after no. the last, uh, whatever twelve, 12 issues. Because um, it's just all in the the Summers house on the moon, um, hanging out with all the some the the Summers family. Which I had a question. Is Jean Grey, so are her and Scott back together nowadays? Yes, and we'll get into okay. one of the coolest parts of this issue that sort of ties into their relationship. Okay, so they all, they all are summers is, is, is <laughs> by marriage or extended family, whatever, and Wolverine. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought it was cute Wolverine's there. We don't know why exactly, but he's living with the summers. <laughs> um, so, yeah, um, because they can plant Krakoan seeds anywhere and create a gate, to anywhere, uh, Scott opted to plant a seed on the moon and have Krakoa build a habitat for he and his family on the moon. And he's separated from Krakoa, but really you can kind of think about it of just like there's a door basically that goes from his house on the moon to Krakoa on Earth. Yeah. And we spent most of the issue with his family on the moon and sort of learning what they're doing, but we also have some stuff. Uh, the first third is kind of a an ex classic X-Men going to take care of a thing. You know, like he's, th there's a little battle and, uh, 
It had some history about Scott in it. But they go to, like, liberate a bunch of mutants that are captives somewhere, which is uh, seems to be a big part of the mutant agenda. An Orcus facility, which is the organization that's AIM and HYDRA and all these different things that we were introduced to early in House of X. Yeah, I like that name, too. Orcus. I do, too. Like the or- orchids and, and to go with the counterpoint Krakoa and its plants. Um, my favorite thing about all that was the Magneto's dialogue. Yeah? What yeah, remind me of that? Just because he was, he was so... Uh, he was so Magneto. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, he, you know, he told his his daughter, Polaris, to like clear the floor so he, before his feet touched down because he didn't want any like rubble or bodies underfoot. Mm-hmm. And he was just so commanding, and I guess you could say arrogant. But I didn't really feel it was arrogance. It's just he he's so supremely confident and sure of his superiority, superiority yeah. to most people around him. Yeah, he <laughs> so really commanding. is drinking his own Kool Aid there. Yeah. Yeah, but but it's Magneto. I kind of I believe him. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. Um. So that relationship thing, we get this awesome diagram of the Summers house. That's like a big circle, and there are nine bedrooms. But this is kind of the big conversation in this issue. The big thing that we learn is that bedrooms 11, 10, 11, and twelve are Scott's, Logan's, and Jean's rooms, and they all have adjoining doors. So, the big thing is like. Scott and Gene and Logan are in a polyamorous relationship. You think? I absolutely and that, and think certainly so. Certainly, what what it looks like. I mean, that'll explain why Wolverine's there. And yeah, they have a history of and I be, think that be, it's, being like the two of them fighting over her. I think it's so Hickman to say that like such a historic aspect of the X Men story is Gene, Logan, and Cyclops and that triangle, love triangle. But I think that to try and go back to that moment of just like Gene choosing which one. It's played out and boring, and it's so Hickman to say, okay, well, it's 2019. Let's take this relationship a step forward. Let's, you know, let's do something new. What if they're expecting, or experimenting with a polyamorous relationship? And I guess we don't know that that's happening yet, <laughs> but at the end of House of X6, there's that scene of Scott and Gene and Logan all drinking beer together, and like it's in one panel. Like, it's, I think he planted those seeds, huh. no pun intended, <laughs> and... I just hope that that's what it is. I, I, wow. I immediately was like, I am, I love the soap opera dynamic of, you know, relationship work. I'm so excited by the idea of, you know, seeing that. I also, I want Logan and Cyclops to fool around a little bit. <laughs> I love that. That's, I, that hadn't occurred to me because I didn't really look at this diagram very closely. Um, You're not worshiping the graphic design <laughs> diagrams? <laughs> I'm afraid not. Though I, now I notice that Havoc's room, next to his room, it's empty. And I'm like, well... Yeah, who's so, that supposed to be? Well, him and Polaris, Magneto's daughter, they used to be an oh. item for many years. And I don't know. At some point, they split up. Um, I think it's have to do with her mental issues or something. And and But she's up there. Well, no, she's in the earlier part with Magneto. So we yeah. don't know if what the relationship status is nowadays. I don't. I didn't like this as quite as much as House of X and Powers of Ten, and I can illustrate that by saying that I think House and Powers was Hickman working within this very confined twelve-issue space where he had the end in mind, and every issue played a very specific part that he wanted to play, and it's kind of like you know drawing a circle and creating an intricate geometric design with these twelve points. You know the issues that yeah. every step of House and Powers, the you could feel the end within it, and it felt like watching like it, that series to me felt like a beautiful geometric image. That's how it felt. Like I was just looking at this beautiful completed structure. 
And now we're in a monthly ongoing series and how long it lasts and his run on it is going to be partially dictated by sales. So there's a lot of uncertainty and unknown in it. Yeah. And this feels a lot more like being out in the, the wild, wild west of comics. Like, you know, you got your 12 weekly issues clearing the table and setting a status quo. And I loved it. And now we're in an ongoing monthly series. And it's just a very different thing. And I'm incredibly excited for it. And I might like it even more than the other stuff, you know, in 10 months when we're, we're deep mm. into it. But it was a very different thing. Like, the, you know, that I think Hickman working with an end in sight like that. I, I, I really liked that. I love this. I love Laniel Francis Yu's art is, is really great. But, you know, it is a very different thing. I can't say that I give this a 10 like I gave all those other issues because those all felt like a, like a beautiful, braided, intricate thing. Yeah. And now we're sort of moving forward, but it's, it's, a, it's a, you know, we're both liberated, but also kind of without the, the tethers of structure. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, to use, extend your metaphor. Yeah. This feels like kind of the, <clears throat> we're traveling along a couple of the knots of those braids now. Yeah. Um, instead of the, the big long thing. So yeah, it is, it's a different beast mm-hmm. and it's, it's interesting. I mean, yeah, I, I wouldn't give it a 10 either. I'd probably give it a, I'd give it an eight. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to give it a nine. Yeah. Um, I loved it. I love like Hickman and this like what he's done has made me incredibly, incredibly excited, and I can't wait to see all the things that weren't paid off with in this series. Eight point five, different thing. Eight point five, yeah. Because <laughs> I, I just remember some other things I loved about it too. What was what did you just remember? Well, they're kind of silly. Yeah, I love the fact that uh, <clears throat> and maybe this happened before Hickman. I don't know, but both Havoc and Polaris are in their. They're Neil Adams design costumes Ooh. from the late 60s. <laughs> I love those costumes. I love those big stupid bands on Havoc's head. Yeah. They have no purpose at all, but they, no, they're I, awesome. I love that costume too. <laughs> I absolutely do. So Roman, yes. Inferior 5, number two by Keith Giffen, Jeff Lemire, and this artist, Delecky. Is that someone mm. you're familiar with? Um, oh, I don't have a copy. Michelle Delecky. Well, no, that was the inker. <coughs> Did, oh yeah, Keith Giffen, plot and pencils. I forgot yeah. that Giffen did the art. You were super into this first issue. I was, and I and I, I really liked issue two. Also, not maybe not quite as much, but it was still, it was still a blast. It was still, you know, it's set in 1988, right after the invasion, the big alien invasion then by the Dominators, <laughs> and and, <laughs> and this was still a lot of fun. And it brought in some more obscure characters, like this is Brother Power the Geek, but he looks all he looks really ragged. I mean. He used to be a happy hippie character, and he looks pretty sad in this. He's got red eyes, so he's either stoned or a demon. Yeah, yeah. So which he, is what drugs do to you. So everyone, yeah. stay stay on the straight and narrow. Yeah, stay on the straight and narrow. Don't do painkillers. Um, Ooh, actually, I I would take your painkillers if you got any extras. So. Oh, okay. Know. Okay. I'll probably use them all up, but I think we never should. know. Um, but yeah, this was great. It's continuing that story that there's something that's being used by the Dominators, this force that takes over different creatures. And in, and, in that, and in this, that's Angry Charlie from... Uh, Jack Kirby something. Kirby and Double X and the, the Cadmus Project. I oh, Cadmus. Um, okay, okay. Yeah, and he shows up because he's being, he's being taken over by this force, the force that keeps doing that little nursery rhyme about the mittens and the kittens. Um, Did you walk away from this issue <laughs> feeling like you had a better sense of what was going on? Uh, maybe just a tiny bit. I mean, the, the, the cause, just because of one panel in here, one of the Dominators is talking to another alien and saying how, ah, yes, they think they won the won the invasion, but the real invasion starts now. Oh, no. So apparently they are, they're the, that was the 
Invasion miniseries from 1988. Was only the that, prequel. Yeah, that was just the prelude. The real invasion is now happening. Still in 1988, but it's now being told. <laughs> Gosh, it's just amazing how Keith Giffen's art feels like it's from another time. Yeah. Yeah, it does. I mean, I love, and I love how Keith Giffen, he does so many different art styles because this is right, instantly you recognize this, um, but he can also do just more standard kind of art that certainly doesn't pop out like this. And I love the fact that when something is being possessed by this force, one of its eyes has an X. Because a bunch of X's were showing up. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and there's that, this, this, whatever, this kid body or whatever with the mask on its, and it keeps saying that the kittens lost their mittens rhyme, and it has a big X drawn on its face. Did you like Invasion originally? You know, it it wasn't a standout miniseries, maxi-series. I mean, it was just an alien invasion story, and it didn't really, I don't remember it having any, any real significance. Except for that the Dominators were just one of the cooler character designs. Yeah, but they'd shown up in DC before. Oh, they had? Yeah, I, I think so, like in Teen Titans, Marv Wolfman, that kind of stuff. Huh. So then where do we end with this issue? Um, <clears throat> actually, this issue ends with one of those Dominators talking to, uh, I forgot his name, but talking to this this guy about the real invasion is about to really start. And, oh, start. The war may be over, but the real invasion has just begun. <laughs> Dominator S's. <laughs> uh, does it feel, do you feel Jeff Lemire in this book anywhere? He, he Only the, the Peacemaker. The, okay. Backup story. I mean, the the initial story. Did did he have anything to do with the initial it's, story? It has him listed as plot, like both oh, okay. Lemire and him listed as plot. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't feel him in the first story. Okay. Um, just he's got such a feel to him. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I and I'm I'm sure they'll eventually come together because the peacemaker backup that's that's uh, drawn by Lemire and and probably written by him. That's about him dealing with. Uh, they haven't said this yet, but PTSD from the invasion mm-hmm. storyline. And being on the front line, so I'm sure that's going to dovetail what what's happening in the first part of the book. Man, I'm less interested with Jeff Lemire writing DC characters, and way more interested with him drawing them. I love looking at that peacemaker yeah. art in there. Yeah, me too. Like I, I didn't really care for what little of his Green Arrow series I read. I, I have not cared for any of his superhero work, but I love his art. Yeah, and and love to see it in DC. But I don't really think they let him do art that often. I don't think so. No, no. So what would you give this? Um, I would give this... Bearing in mind that I think you gave number one a 10. I did. I did. Uh, I'd give this one an eight. Okay. It's a fun read. It was a quick read. Um, but mo- for, for the most part, it was it was fun because it was like, oh, yeah, uh, those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll tell you about a thing that I read that, uh, gosh, I got weird, complex feelings about everybody. Tales from the Dark Multiverse, Batman Nightfall, number one. This is written by Scott Snyder and Kyle Higgins, who, in my mind, kind of famously comes in to write Scott Snyder things when Scott Snyder has just sort of plotted them. And the artist is Javier Fernandez, with colors by Alex Gumarez. Um This is the first issue in several one-shots that are coming out that are these Tales from the Dark Multiverse. They're all written by different people, and they are basically what-ifs. Uh, and this one is, what if Batman's back was broken by Bane? And Azrael became Batman. And then after Batman got strong enough to take his mantle back from Azrael, if Azrael had actually stabbed him through the chest and killed him. Hmm. Wow. And then sort of took over Gotham. And I was not that interested in it. But I flipped it open and was like, 
had resolved to just skim the first couple pages. And I ended up reading the whole thing, which was like 46 <laughs> pages. It's like two full issues worth of material, which books that are oversized, Insight into Jeff. I usually put those at the back of my stack so I can give them the time that they need. But when Tuesday comes around, I try and read as many books before Wednesday as I can. Yeah. So that means things that take twice or three times as long is another thing. Um, usually go to the back of the stack. So I read this whole thing this morning. And it was oddly compelling. But I have my issues with it as well. The The framing device is really interesting. Okay. Um, do you remember, did you read the first issue of Flash Forward? Yeah. We were introduced to that character, uh, the Tempest Fuginaut, <clears throat> I think is a new character. Yeah, yeah. And it's basically this entity that can straddle between our multiverse and then the dark multiverse. And he's just acting as, it's it's very almost like carbon copy of what ifs. It's like the Uatu being the watcher telling these stories and realities that could have happened. That's what this guy is doing. Oh, okay. But he keeps talking about this this crisis that's coming. A crisis is coming, perhaps the greatest yet. And if the multiverse is to survive it, it must be stronger. So I'm interested in this crisis that's upcoming, but it made me have some weird feelings, particularly that Scott Snyder, they've been really cashing in on, like I think metal was a big hit for DC. Mm-hmm. And based on that, they created the Batman Who Laughs miniseries. Now they're doing Batman and Superman. And we're now we've got these tales from the dark multiverse that really it's just Elseworlds. DC just say it's Elseworlds. But they're trying to capitalize on new properties and Scott Snyder's popularity. And one thing that kind of annoyed me is that I feel like Scott Snyder has a real tendency. Like, So I was trying to think about an upcoming crisis. We've only had like, you know, five major crises. It just made me feel that, like, Scott Snyder's Justice League and Perpetua and this Year of the Villain stuff, like, it's so Scott Snyder playing with his toys and making the DC Universe follow. And I feel like other crises are way more, like, writers playing with the DC Universe toys. And I'm not sure if that makes any sense, but this week there was, like... Lots of things where it's like, okay, Scott Snyder, we get it. You love the dark multiverse, and you love the Batman who laughs, and you love Perpetua, and in Nightwing this week, which I'll come back to, like, the Talon is a big part of it, which is like, yeah. Like, I think Scott Snyder has such a tendency to sort of cash in on things he's already created and just be like, here. So anyway, this issue multiple times references that there's an upcoming crisis, and I just found myself not super excited about that because of the state of the Justice League and the state of this, like... It's all very like Scott Snyder being like, look at these things that I made. And and I think that crises are supposed to be way more focused on DC history mm-hmm. and not quite as exploratory as what Snyder does, which is, you know, like, remember that time I made the Talons in the Court of Owls? Let's bring those guys back. You're like, we get it. Oh, is it the Batman who laughs? Okay, Scott. Like, <laughs> yeah. we get it. You did all these things. So that these those were feelings I was having this whole time while reading this. That being said, this issue was pretty good. <laughs> and Azrael has taken over Gotham and it we do a time jump and there's this gorgeous shot of like Goth of Wayne Tower and as he goes up this Azrael character goes up to the top of Wayne uh, Wayne Tower we realize that he's kept Bruce alive <laughs> his torso and then his head which has his brain floating in like a a glass oh, thing and Azrael like is desperately seeking his approval and Bruce won't give it to him but he's just this like <laughs> fucked up head in a jar basically <laughs> And, yeah, it was pretty dark, like Dark Multiverse would, would have you think, and um, like a car accident, you can't look away. Huh. So these Dark Multiverse one-shots, I think there's they're more interesting than I had thought they were going to be. 
But I also, like I said, it it made me have my problems with this sort of like, I don't know, yeah, like yeah. quit beating me over the head with the dark multiverse and the Batman who laughs and the Court yeah. of Owls and. Yeah, I, I I can definitely see that. I mean, that one panel of of <clears throat> Bruce Wayne brain jar is intriguing, yeah. and also makes me wonder. So, whatever happened to Damien in this reality? Um, yeah, he has no Batman to come home to, or to be reunited with. But yeah, I wonder, like, hearing you describe that, because it used to be you would read after the fact how like the and Marvel and DC apparently did this, where they'd have like writers summits for the next and like the bit next big event like 52 or something where grant morrison and and you know rucka what what are rucking they're all they're all like oh i want to do this i want to do this well how do we make all that work together and it's a team effort and everything and now yeah is it just snyder going oh look at all this stuff okay i want to do this i'm a big name okay dc's like okay we'll do it everybody else follow his lead yeah and (laughs) And it's fine because I don't think any of the ideas these created are bad. They've all been good stories, but I think that it, it feels like editors being like, "Wow, that made us a lot of money, so we can't let's cash in on that." But it also makes sense because DC they make money off their comic books, but they make make way more money off their IPs, which is to say, Batman is an uh, an ident- it's a property. You know, mm-hmm. you can put a Batman logo on a shirt. Oh, IP is an intellectual property. Intellectual okay. property, exactly. I thought you meant like IP address. No, no. <laughs> so I think that if you can create more IPs that stand up, you know, we had Spider-Man, but then think about how many Venom shirts are out there, right? Yeah. I think that's. I think that they're working hard to create these new IPs. Like yeah. the Batman Who Laughs, they're pushing, and the Dark Multiverse, they're pushing, because this way they can create more things that will make them money independently. It, it, it Which is just sort of me thinking about behind-the-scenes stuff, but... yeah. And, and it, it definitely could could be because you know now they're, you know, they're ultimate overlords. Our Warner Brothers, yeah. or sorry, our AT and T, right? Yeah, is it AT T? Wait, I thought like it was that. Disney. Isn't Disney the owner of both now? No, Disney owns uh, Marvel, but like AT and T or something like that owns them, and they have some new people. And they even said at one point that they're they're more focused on their IPs now and less yeah. the stories. So. Those are just some of the thoughts that this book made me have because I'm yeah. a hyperactive person who thinks too much about stuff. So I give this book um, a 6.5. It was strangely compelling, but uh, also I, it made me read more of these. I'm going to read more of these Dark Multiverse books, but I wasn't also super excited about it at all. And yeah. I'm glad is, that it is. Is this Azrael, is he still like under the thrall of, of St. Dumas, the Order and everything? Yeah, so he goes by St. Batman, and he's using oh. Venom, and Bane's son oh, helps Bruce, and it's... <laughs> it was strangely compelling, wow. but yeah. Roman. Talking yeah. about dark, fucked-up <laughs> versions of things. Yes, this was dark and fucked up. When I was a little kid, I was really into Jim Carrey, and mm-hmm. when I was you know six years old, my parents drove me to Spokane to go see the movie The Mask. And it was my favorite movie, and we bought it on VHS. I would watch it at every slumber party, and I loved it. <laughs> I have never read any comic book of The Mask. This is fucked up. <laughs> Give me some context, baby. It is. I was surprised by this, how dark it was. Because, <clears throat> like, the first couple, the first, like, I don't know, three Mask ser- comic book series, um, they were, they were, there was some dark humor, but for the most part, they were goofy like Warner Brothers, Bugs Bunny style antics and violence, except in real life. So people actually died and stuff. But the mask, whoever the mask possessed, it was still like a crazy Warner Brothers Tex Avery type character. Um, 
the mask in this is is just seems to be just pr- probably outright crazy evil. Now in the movie, like wasn't it Loki? Like the mask was like, yeah, I think it was. Yeah. So is that anything that like I don't remember if that was part of the comic book origin of the mask if they ever gave really much of an origin i want it's been a long time since i read it but i want to say if they did give they gave like maybe a couple of possible it was like the joker uh-huh. there was a couple of possible different origins sure but they were all hinted at or given by the mask itself so who knows if they were fictions or not worth mentioning this is written by christopher cantwell who wrote she could fly with art by patrick reynolds and colors by lee luridge you know, and I, uh, it was compelling. I mean, I, 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 but I was really surprised at how, before the mask ever even shows up, how, um, no, I guess the, yeah, the, the person's wearing the mask. There was just some heavy, heavy gore and violence, some of which I didn't even understand. I don't know why this woman exploded from being force-fed chocolate i know i I think that was kind of the cartoony aspect the the, the book opens with some abusive foster parents that are like torturing these kids and one of them's gonna molest them it seems like and the other's starving them and the mask shows up and shoves an entire bottle of chocolate syrup into their mouth and then it starts coming out their eyes so i think that we were sort of led to believe now again my only frame reference is the movie but he had the ability to sort of bend like reality sort of became looney tunes-esque when he did stuff so i could almost believe that maybe he had an infinite amount of chocolate syrup or something. Okay, that that would make sense. I guess for me, the art is so, uh, and it's not obscured, but the art is so dark and grim and shadowy. Kind of, yeah, grim and shadowy and realistic style that I didn't get that sense of absurdity from it, mm-hmm. of dark absurdity. I just got dark. Right. <laughs> um, which, which, yeah, I like your interpretation because I I missed that, and I think it's because of the art style. Um, I like the you know dialogue stuff. Oh, there's another absurd thing there. That guy gets hit in the face with a with a uh, golf club, which for some reason like bends at a 90 degree right. angle. I was like, God, if it hit him that hard, it would have killed him. Um, there's the return of some old characters. This woman running for city council is, I think she's a former girlfriend of one of the early. Um, wearers of the mask and it's interesting because they do bring up stanley ipkiss who is the, yeah, the stanley, character yeah. in the movie right and right, apparently yeah. is a per- the, the char- main character in the original series yeah yeah and this was his his girlfriend back then um and now she's running for city council um there's some local crime lords involved she's probably going to get on the council the guy her opponent has no support at all um and when he's out at the on the shoreline, this polluted shoreline, looking at a bridge and talking to his wife on the phone about how how desperate he is, he finds the mask, which had earlier been thrown away by somebody, but but now it's back on shore, and this loser political guy finds it. So apparently he's going to be the uh, the next wearer. And I guess my problem was just I had a little bit of a hard time tracking who was who because the art was very crime, noir, shadowy, sketchy. Had a hard time tracking who was who and what their motives were. It sounds like you had a better idea of, of what was going on than I did. I um, kind of bounced through like, oh, is this the same guy who was wearing the mask? Or is this a new person? Like, I had a hard time tracking it. Yeah, no, I, I had a hard time. And I only know that because of the dialogue. The dialogue, because, yeah, the art didn't tell me that. The person that throws away the mask in the hoodie earlier, I don't know if, 
who that was exactly. And they're who had to have done that initial murder. Yeah. People seem fascinated by the fact that this person with the green mask has shown back up. Yeah, and the guy who throws it away, throws it off the bridge, that later on this political hopeful finds it nearby. When he throws it off, I mean, he says in the... He says in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, but he says it in a Spanish, um, and then tosses the mask in. Hmm. Um, Did you know that was... Yeah. Do you speak Spanish? I don't, but I, I kind of guess because I recognize the word, well, nombre, padre, spiritu. Okay, that's good. That's good deductive <laughs> reasoning. I appreciate your skills. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I didn't track it visually. It, it was going to be... And yeah, the lack of... I guess the lack of humor... There's plenty of darkness in this, but it's it's not it it just there wasn't anything in here that made me laugh like the mask has always done before. Yeah, it was like very dark. Yeah, and and even in that original scene of him sort of taking justice on this horribly abusive foster parents, I was like, man, do we really need to see these horribly abusive foster parents? Like just this guy about to put one kid in a dog cage and then like about to molest the other. It was like, oof. Yeah. I get it. Can we do this without <laughs> me going this dark? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, you know, I I miss the old Mask series and the Mask movie. Um, yeah, I'm not sure about this. If it stays this dark, I don't know. But what would you give it score-wise then? Mm. See, if we give this a, a too low of a score, the Mask might show up. I know. That's, um, that's dangerous. I would give it like a, boy, a six and a half, a seven. I'd go 5.5. Yeah. (laughs) Speaking of grim and dark, we had a customer, Ryan Russell, who we love. Oh, Ryan Russell. What did he he ask us to do this time? He asked us to read and talk about Nightwing 65 by Dan Juergens, art by Ronan Cliquet, and colors by Nick Filardi. And I haven't been reading this book since... I read the first two issues of when Nightwing lost hmm. his memory and became Rick Grayson. Yeah. And Ruben, you also read this? I read this one too. And I, I'm like you, I'd only, I think I only read a f- couple issues of after he lost his memory, got shot in the head and lost his memory. And, and I fell off it after that. And I love when people ask us to read a thing to talk about because yeah. I love dipping into a thing that I wouldn't read normally and, you know, having a chance, having an excuse to sort of check in on it. And I think that, you know, every comic you should be able to dip in and read and be able to get at least something out of. So I, I really enjoy that challenge. So, again, we want to send that message out to anybody. If you're ever in the shop on a Wednesday or a Thursday, since we usually record on mm. Thursdays these days, um, if you're interested in a book, say, hey, guys, talk about this on the podcast, and then yeah. we'll totally do it, and we'll be grateful. Yeah, yeah, that'll be cool. Um... So, that being said, read this Nightwing book with not a ton of context for what's been going on. <laughs> I'm surprised he still doesn't have his memory back. It's been a year. It was Batman, like, 57. Has it been a year now? Wow. Yeah. Yeah, now he thinks he's Svengoolie. <laughs> it was, uh, there's a Svengoolie ad for context. Um <laughs> It was like, I read that issue like right around the time that the Venom movie came out, which I think was October of last year. Hmm, okay. Um, and I looked up the issue and it was like Batman 57, which has been like 80 just came out. So it's been like 22 issues, which, you know, two a month, that's about 12 months. So this is still happening, yeah, which surprises me. Yeah. And apparently, but apparently there's a whole bunch of folks running around being vigilantes called the Nightwings. Yeah, well, I do know that he lost his memory, and some other cops, I think, who it started as, found 
like his hideout and found a bunch of his costumes. So now they're all wearing his costumes and fighting for him. You know, fighting crime on behalf of him. But he is also fighting crime in some capacity as well. Yeah, so I wonder if maybe he joined them at some point or something or kind of joined them with... Because he knows he... Apparently he has memories of his childhood and losing Mm -hmm. his parents. And the only thing he doesn't remember is being Nightwing with Batman. Right, but he it sounds like he knows that he was, but, and it sounds like he yeah. knows that Bruce was Batman. Yeah, apparently he knows that stuff. He just doesn't remember it. He doesn't he doesn't have the experience of it. So I would say that the whole losing your memory storyline is a kind of played out storyline. I'm surprised this is still going on, and I'm not <laughs> very interested in Dick Grayson being Rick Grayson. Yeah. That being said, they've been doing it for a while, and at this point I feel like they're doing it with some goal in mind and I'm interested to see what they do with it. And in this one, and this sort of feeds into my sort of rant about Scott Snyder I went on earlier, but this has the Talons in it, which are the Court of Owl people. And and one of them shows up and starts fighting Nightwing Dick Rick Grayson. And uh, it is exposed that it is Dick's great grandfather. And he's been kept alive with Electronium or whatever the, court of owls used to keep those people alive yeah they have their own mystical metal and we knew that from you know scott snyder's new 52 batman run and everything but and because it's his great grandfather he wants to beat him up and then have him recruit him to become a talon with him and fulfill his you know life goal i feel like a different series had talked about like dick grayson being a talon like i, I feel like he's tried they, they've tried to recruit him before or something yeah they have i think before all the um uh scott snyder definitely before metal mm-hmm. and all of that yeah there was some storyline where they tried to recruit him yeah so i mean maybe he also posed as one briefly to infiltrate them yeah okay that I sounds that. familiar but at this point, you know, like he kind of beats him up and then he gives him this pair of goggles that makes him look like a talon. And at the end, uh, yeah, he forces him to wear them. Yeah, he's like, Welcome to the court, Richard. At long last, you are a talon. And, and I don't believe that that is going to be the long term consequence. No. In fact, this, that last panel, when they show him wearing the goggles and their talon themed goggles, um, my, first, <laughs> my first thought um, was that. That, oh, so this is how they'll, like, jar his memory back into yeah. place. It'll be some Talon messing with his mind. And right. Then he'll be like, well, no, wait, I'm I'm Batman's buddy. And then he'll have a sense of humor back. And, right. Because that's one thing I missed, like, in this issue. There's uh, Rick, apparently Rick Grayson has no sense of humor. He doesn't do any joking around. He he's, yeah. He's just, he's, and admittedly, I haven't read most of the issues with Rick Grayson. But the, like, three issues I've read. He's a really boring dude. He's like, <laughs> it's not even like, oh man, he's a dick. No pun intended. It's that, it's he's just boring and not compelling to read. Yeah, yeah, he's not, he's not, he's not cracking wise. He's not like flirtatious. He's not. He doesn't have any interesting little mannerisms. To sort of plumb the depths for some positive things to get out of it, and and it's not all bad, you know. I, like I said, I really love having an excuse to just dip into a comic series. So I'm really yeah. grateful to be, you know, say, hey, guys, what's going on with this? Tell me about it. I think that if you've read all of these issues, it seems like the other Nightwings that have his costume, they seem to be relatively flushed out characters. And mm-hmm. I bet that if I had read all of this series since he's become Rick Grayson, 
that I would probably be attached to those characters in some capacity. Because it's probably. been a year. Yeah, yeah, because we have no, you know, you and I have no idea who this B character is or any of these folks. Right. So I think that there there probably is some catharsis to be found there. Yeah. The art is fine. It's totally serviceable, just perfectly acceptable comic art. I am curious uh, if Lex Luthor, because there's one panel where the skies change color and the Legion of Doom symbol shows up in the skies and... And I'm wondering. And I'm wondering. So, did Lex Luthor make a offer? Did he make a gift to the Talons? Well, that same Court thing happens at the end of that Batman issue, though. Right. Right. So, like, I think that I, more than that, I think that there's a sort of universal thing of every DC book, probably on the final page, is going to show. Yeah. This and and, uh, of and this yeah, this must be the, the 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 next big crisis leading into that. Right, and it's that symbol that's been showing up in Justice League. Like yeah. the, the bad guys got that symbol and. So, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I'm really grateful that we read this. I'm appreciative of it. it I am. I always like having, you know, because this, this lets us check in on a book or characters that we haven't been following for a while. Exactly. Usually. We, so we it's nice to do that and, and get refreshed. So please, everybody, even if it's a thing yeah. that you don't care about, um, please just you know say, hey, I would read this one. Nate Butcher, I'm looking at you. I know <laughs> you're going to be here Wednesday. Tell me about a book you want us to talk about. Uh, also, everyone, I just want to include that we spent about a half hour today looking for the box that we packed up from the live convention that has everybody's written questions. <laughs> I don't know where those are, and we're really bummed about it. They're, because they're, it was they're somewhere in this, this two-level space of ours. Yeah, <laughs> we're going to find it. But until then, we don't have any questions, and Django is the guy who has the voicemail recordings. I don't have access to those. I should because, you know... Yeah, you definitely I edited should. a bunch of the podcast yeah. and everything, but I oh also hmm. that it reminds me. Thanks to everybody. The last two weeks, the podcast has been about a day later. Uh, I'm very lucky. I got to get a new computer. <laughs> That's so awesome. The downside of that is that all of my editing software and everything has um, been updated to newer versions, hmm. and I don't know how to use them. And so for right now, it takes me way longer to edit a podcast so it'll probably take five or six episodes till i'm back at the normal speed that i was at but all of my shortcuts have changed hmm. all my hotkeys are changed none of my music's on there so wow um i just appreciate everyone for being really patient uh for these going up a day or so late for the last two weeks it's been a struggle so what was your nightwing score oh my nightwing score uh boy i'll give it i'll give it a five yeah i mean i mean it might be and it, i'm guessing probably a little higher if i was caught up. Right. I'm going to go 5.5. I think there was nothing in it that slapped me in the face and said, this is a book that you need to be reading. But I think the art was totally serviceable. I think that the overarching idea of erasing Dick Grayson's memory and making him Rick Grayson is a, just a, not a great idea for more than like two issues. Yeah. So, so that's my feeling on it. Okay, real quickly, I want to talk about Absolute Carnage number four. This book, I wasn't incredibly excited to read, even though I know I've liked it, but, you know, you get your stack of books, and you're working through them, and some of them go to the top, and some go to the bottom, and and I forgot that I really like this book, Roman. It's just big, <laughs> dumb, great fun. Do you Have you read any of this? I've only read... Uh, have I read Absolute Carnage? I might have read the first one. I don't, I don't remember. You know, Eddie Brock, you know, bad yeah. guy, but kind of fancies himself kind of a hero doing his own stuff, and... Um, in the last issue, Wolverine and Captain America and the Thing had to get sort of put into these tanks to remove this part of their body that uh, keeps track of the fact that they had they've been possessed by Venom at some point. Mm, okay. So while they were in there, 
um, in that facility, they get attacked by Carnage, and Eddie Brock has to defend them. And, you know, that he ran into Steve Rogers, and Steve was being, I don't know, being Steve, but Eddie Brock is, you know, kind of a tainted human. He's been bad. But he's trying to defend these people while they're out of commission, and he picks up Cap's shield, and he knows he doesn't stand a chance, but he starts fighting off all these Carnage symbiotes and, and Miles Morales, who's been turned into a doppelganger. And he's got Cap's shield, and he buys enough time, he gets his ass totally kicked, and he's sort of waxing poetic about how he's trying his best, but he can't do this stuff, and he just can't can't beat this this guy, and he said, oh my god, and then there's just this moment where you see a red hand on his back, he says, you've done a good job, Brock, now what do you say? Think I can have a turn with that thing? And he, it's Captain America, and he gets the shield back from Eddie Brock to go beat up some people. All that to say, my favorite moment in this book was just an opportunity for Captain America to be fucking Captain America. You know, the Captain America who believes in people and he believes in second chances and he wants to tell Eddie, like, hey, I recognize that you just defended us alone knowing that you were going to lose and that's Captain America to me. Like, that respect and deference for people who are trying. It's a good Cap moment. <laughs> Sweet. That looks good. That sounds good. Um, but anyway, yeah, this is mostly just a big fighting issue. In the last issue, the Hulk got the, the Venom symbiote on it, and some bad stuff happened. And Some cool th some cool looking things look like they're happening in, in the series. Yeah. So like, except for I don't like, is that Venom? Carnage, which is a, that looks like a broken action figure missing his midsection. Yeah. Well, I'm <laughs> glad you brought that up because one of the, the big complaint I have in this series, and, and I really liked, I really like it. It's, it's just big and fun. I finished reading it and I just sat there. I started reading another comic and I got a page into it. And I was like, you know what? And I put that book down. I was like, I'm going to sit and think about this one a little bit. So I opened this back up and flipped through it. Because I was like, I, I enjoyed a lot of this. Yeah. But my big complaint, and this is not a complaint. This is Jeff nitpicking. This is a good book. But here are the things that sort of did get stuck in my craw. Um, there, the art is great. The character designs, I don't love. And Carnage has just been like a spinal cord with, you know, shoulders. And just like, <laughs> make Carnage look like Carnage. Like, we love Carnage. You've you've taken a lot of the gravitas out of Carnage by making him look by this other look like this other thing. Yeah. And then at this point, he gets the Venom symbiote off of the Hulk. And he makes him look like a sort of a Victorian gothic soldier with horns and shoulder pads and it's like dude <laughs> just make him look like still carnage. missing a med section <laughs> yeah like he's just a spinal cord yeah because the carnage design i don't know if was he's perfect was that mcfarlane or it eric larson bagley, bagley and randy emberlin oh wow okay and eric larson like were the, well, the that, people on the book at yeah the time. that was a great design that's yeah a classic design. So why, is Venom. Why mess with, yeah, why mess with those? And they have messed with those designs. And, like, that's nitpicky. And I don't want to decrease other people's enthusiasm for the book by that. But just, like, man, let me see Carnage, like, looking like Carnage. Like, I was born in 89. That means I think that Venom and Carnage are the coolest fucking looking things out there. That That's my only complaint. The art's gorgeous. The The story is fun and big and dumb. And, you know... It's it's good stuff. Donnie Cates, you're writing a good book. Uh, I, you make me excited to read your books and look at your last pages, and, and I'm, a, I'm a big fan of them. I'm going to give Absolute Carnage number four a 7.5. It's just a great, it's, it's just a good, fun book, but I think that they really missed the mark by drastically changing the appearances of some characters that 
shallow to say it as it is, you know, I love Carnage and Venom because when I was four, I thought they were the coolest, baddest looking motherfuckers out there. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> on the topic of bad motherfuckers, <laughs> tell me about the metal men. The metal men. <laughs> There's some bad motherfuckers. Bad motherfuckers. <laughs> um, Metal Men number one by Dan DiDio and, uh, wait, not Shane Davis, not Alan Davis, Shane Davis. Um, first issue of their newest series. I don't, ongoing miniseries? Probably mini. 12 issue maxi. Oh, 12 issue maxi. Wow. Okay. Um, and this pretty much recaps uh, all you need to know about the Metal Men. Um, so if you the, don't the, know anything about the Metal Men and you're like me, <laughs> this is a good way to get in. Yeah. I mean, basically, Dr. Will Magnus, um, he created the Metal Men. Um, it's they're 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 AI. They're artificial beings made out of metal. Um, each one has the emotional and physical attributes of the metal they represent, like mercury and, and lead and iron, gold and tin. And tin has a stutter because you know, apparently back in the '60s when they created these guys, that if you had a stutter, it meant you were weak. Uh, so yeah, it recaps that kind of stuff. Will Magnus over the years, it's been revealed he kind of has some. Maturity problems, some emotional issues. He's jealous of scientists like T.O. Morrow and stuff that created Amazo and other guys that in DC Universe that work with AI and get more credit and recognition than he does. The Metalmen have been destroyed many times and brought back. Why is Tin so sad? Well, in here, Magnus is narrating the issue and he's talking to someone and it's finally revealed that it's... Uh, a robot that looks like Tin oh. sitting in this red chair. And actually this person, this robot was, her name is Nameless. Oh. She was never given a name back in the original stories because she was just created to be a, a companion to Tin to keep him from being so lonely okay. and feeling overshadowed by the cooler metals. Um, but Magnus, being a dope, never gave her a name. So they just called her Nameless which is pretty sad. So yeah, you would look sad too. She was never given an identity. Um, and this also ties into, I guess, more Snyder's stuff, Challenger Mountain, which was part of a big part of metal. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're right. Yeah, and yeah. Like the Age of Heroes and the Terrifics yeah. and stuff. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So it ties into all that because here at Challenger Mountain, they're mining and there's some sentient metal Actually, I don't know if it's metal. It, there's, they don't know if it's sentient, but there's a metal that's like moving around and starts coming up toward the surface, and it, seem, it seems to be sentient. It seems to be moving with purpose. So they all start panicking about that. Um, and then we go back to Magnus talking to Nameless. Oh, man, I bet Nameless Metal somehow ties into fucking Dark Knight's metal and fucking Scott Snyder's metal shit. Probably, probably, yeah. Like maybe it's some new metal or the Electronium or some yeah. dark multiverse. Yeah, and we have another flashback here that, and Gold is yelling at Dr. Magnus because there's been different incarnations of Metal Men, and this shows one where Gold, for a brief period, had wanted to look more human, so Magnus crafted him like a, hum a more human-looking skull with, a, with hair and everything, which looks suspiciously like Magnus mm -hmm. himself. Um, and Platinum's in here, which I hope they were going to do away with this because in the old comics, Platinum, the one female robot, until Nameless came along, um, always had a crush on their creator, Will Magnus, and she was always, like, pining over him and stuff and was always just silly. There's a gorgeous double spray. But, yeah, but then they reveal that to. apparently Gold and the other Metal Men had stumbled into this locked laboratory and found all these bodies and spare parts, versions of themselves, all sorts of different 
incarnations, including a brief period when they had like fake skin and had human identities. Um, like that guy with the goatee and the beard is, is Mercury, his human oh, disguise. Oh, nose. Yeah. Um, and this is a shock to the metal man. Cause they're like, what's, what do you, this is what you think of us. We're just spare parts laying around in a lab. You just, as you need to re, you know, rejigger us or whatever. Are we really alive? Um, <laughs> and, and he talks about the responsometers, which in previous versions, the responsometers are what give them, it's their, their robotic souls, basically what gives them life. But in here, Magnus is saying, well, no, the responsometers just animated your bodies. They don't really give any kind of life. You're just programs. So it's going to get into some issues of identity, I guess. Um, and hopefully that'll be done well. Um, Magnus has got his problems. So, And then at the end, we see a, a new, this metal they discovered in Challenger Mountain is speaking now hmm. and kind of forming a humanoid body, and it, it wants to talk to Will Magnus. So this is written by Dan Didio, which I think is interesting. He's, you know... I think he did the last Metal Men series. The big guy in charge of DC Comics, and he occasionally writes series, and it's things like OMAC or Metal Men. Like, they're always these yeah. love letters to 70s comics. And uh, Roman, I kind of consider you, uh, you have a thing in common with Dan Didio, is that you're <laughs> just, you You love 70s comics as well. Is that right? Like, Metal Men 70s? Is that, is uh, that right? 60s. Okay. In the 70s, 60s, 70s. It's just so associate you with the set. I, I I always I always imagine if me and Dan Didio were able to like sit down and just shoot the shit for a while, we'd have a lot of fun. I think so. Yeah, I, yeah. and I have talked to him a, a fair amount, and he is a really actually nice guy. I, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Dan Didio. Um, you you would Ooh. you'll read this whole thing, right? Like I don't I this just seems like Romans. I, they've got your number. I I probably will. I mean, the last Metalman series. I think actually I didn't read the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I don't remember which one that was, if he wrote it or not, but... I think it was in the New 52, but there was a Metal Men Yeah, and there was a Metal Men sequence of that... Uh, years ago, DC did that oversized, like, actual newspaper. Wednesday Comics. Wednesday Comics. There was a Metal Men yeah. ongoing in that, which might have been also written by Didio. I came my point about Will Magnus. Just that, he doesn't look anything like Didio. Um, I'll read at least the next issue and maybe the issue after that. Maybe I, I think this. I, I hope it keeps keeps my interest. Very pure about your love of of the comics that you read. That you were young, and I'm always sort of like, oh man, I'm trying to read as many comics as I can, but I don't have a ton of time. And and you're just always out there. You're just always finding time to read things, and I I love it. I'll I'll stupidly stay up like. St- comic book falling on my face in bed struggling until like 3 a.m. or something to read one more issue so what do you give it um i will give it a 7.5 uh batman 81 we were going to talk about once in future but we're running long oh yeah give me a quick 30 seconds you like once in future number three it was fine i really like yeah i like the grandma i like arthurian stuff I, yeah, I you know it's so uh, it's such a mix of National Treasure and the Da Vinci Code, which are two things I like a lot. Yeah, but uh, it's I've just, never seen National Treasure. Oh, it's so great, buddy! We should watch <laughs> it sometime. We should. Um, this one was really good. I loved the the little bit in once. Okay, I guess we're talking about it. Um, <laughs> I love the little bit about the sword. I was confused about this. Um, Arthur comes back. 
in in the last two issues that's happened, he was rejuvenated. That's King think... Arthur, not Aquaman. Yeah, King oh, Arthur. Oh, except he, Aquaman's a King Arthur too. Never, he damn sure it. is. Then <laughs> um, his body sort of reorganized, but he's kind of like a, a bones with organs that are growing. And as soon as he comes back, somebody shows him a sword, like gives it to him. Then he throws the sword after a conversation. Uh, and he says, but first I must be truly king once more. So let us find a blade more fitting for my station. I don't know a lot about Arthurian legend, but mm. I love the sword and the stone legend, mm-hmm. you know, and it's such a cool idea. So I love the idea that this king is so bonded with his weapon and he kind of became the king because of that, that he wouldn't settle for a lower weapon. <laughs> but then he, they find a, a sword in a stone and, and our protagonist and his grandmother in the, the woods sort of sneakily looking at them. And he says, Excalibur. And she says, oh, Duncan. In some stories, yes. In most, no. Excalibur belongs to the Lady of the Lake, remember? This is maybe Clarent? That's probably too late. 14th, 15th century. (laughs) This Arthur seems mainly early Welsh. Mainly. Let's just stick with the sword and the stone, hmm? What's that mean? Um, Well, she's right. Yeah, it's... uh, There's different versions of the legends, and the ones I think Americans are most familiar with, probably because of the Disney movie or whatever. Um, they they always think Excalibur is the sword he pulled out of the stone. But in most of the legends, and especially the earlier ones, no, Excalibur's one of the mystical swords. And I think it's the one he uses as king and uses in like the final battle at Camelot. But it's not the same sword that he pulled out of the stone. See, I had no fucking idea. I yeah, because I think he, he gets Excalibur from the lady in the lake. But there's also, there's more than one lady in the lake, too. Oh, shit. There's actually, like, there's at least three swords important in the King Arthur mythos. And I used to know the name of, there's Excalibur, and I used to know the name of the other two. Yeah, apparently Clarence, which I didn't recognize. Um, But, yeah, in fact, there's, I think it's in Monty Python, the Holy Grail, there's some line, what character says about, you know, oh, there's always some... Some bink out in a lake giving out swords. <laughs> so, yeah, there's there's more than one well, important so sword. I incorrectly interpreted that as, oh, like maybe there has been more than one King Arthur. Mm. And they're, like Arthur is a name of a family name or something. And the, the, the guy that we're dealing with isn't the one that pulled the sword out of the stone. It's a different person. That's clearly incorrect. Well, there, there just, could no, be. No, 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 no. You're, you're obviously more informed <laughs> than I am. I just made something up to justify it. Well, no, but, there, but you're not far out because there are... Like she says, there's this is obviously a Welsh king, cause, and that could be a reference to there's slightly varying differences, whether it's a Welsh telling of the King Arthur mythos, which has how it all originated, or a more um, English telling. And I his love, father was Uther, who can also be translated as King Arthur. I love that he pulls this sword out of the stone. He's like kind of nude as he does it, and as he picks it up, it puts this outfit on him that's very cool and gothic, and he says, it speaks to me of Britain. It hungers for the throat of Saxon men. Hmm. You know? (laughs) That was a good line. It's just, it's so, like, I don't mean this diminutively at all. I love National Treasure, and I love Da Vinci Code. They're, like, kind of shallow in that they appeal to everybody for the most part, but they're these amazing alternate reality alternate fiction alternate history fun you know just like wow what if the world it's just like really great conspiracy theories that you love and 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 this is doing that in a really really great way and i like kieran gillen a lot and uh you know i don't i don't have i don't think this is blowing the world apart with how innovative or good it is i don't think it's particularly innovative at all but i think it's very fun to read yeah it uh, is. i would give it an eight what would you give it oh yeah definitely an eight nice yeah 
Nice. Yeah. <laughs> I always look forward to reading it. I mean, it's only, what, three issues in, four issues? And I hope it goes for a while, but I bet yeah. it's just five or six. Yeah, yeah. It's a good, fun read. Yeah. It makes makes me feel smart when I remember my things, when it brings up memories of like, oh, yeah, my medieval lit class. Okay, sure. That yeah. blew my mind that you just <laughs> knew that shit. Um, I talk about not loving fantasy, not loving high fantasy, and this is an instance of a fantasy book that I really like. And it's not, you know, your strict high fantasy fantasy stuff, mm. but it's the kind of thing that if someone were saying, like, I like fantasy books yeah. in six months when this is out as a paperback, I would 100% recommend this yeah. to people because it's just a very fun fantasy thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. God, Ca- Roman. Ca- Caliburn. Caliburn is that, the other That was sword. one of the other swords. Clarent, Caliburn, and Excalibur. Yeah, I don't, and I don't know Clarent, but... Exclarent Caliburn. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, Clarice. Clarice. <laughs> Fava beans. Um... <laughs> Let's bring this thing home. Batman number 81, Tom King, and oh my God, John Romita Jr. is still on this book, and Klaus oh, Janssen. Oh, man, that cover. Jeez. Dude, the cover, but also page two and three, the double-page spread of all of the Bat family is so bad. <laughs> it, it, it really is. And and I hate saying that because, you know. I hate it, too. Romita Jr. was one of the greats. Um, he was. You know, 70s. He was 60s, even, 70s, I think 80s? he was even great on that J. Michael Straczynski Spider-Man run that I've been, I was, oh. I had made like yeah, oh yeah, yeah, thirty issues ground on, and then I sort of slowed down the last couple of the last month or so. But that was two thousand one, and I think it was great. Yeah, this is, it's just, I I feel bad continually talking about it, um, but it's it seems like he's just phoning it in, is how it feels to me. Yeah. Yeah, me too, unfortunately. I do think the Superman Year One stuff is better than this has been. Yeah. But I think his style just does not seem to fit DC to me. Mm-hmm. And I, I, that seems like a weird thing to say because I think any artist should be able to do either one. But I don't know if he's just not trying while he's here or whatnot. But it's just, it, there's much of it that just seems relatively amateurish to me. I had somebody buy Kick-Ass the other day and I was like, this is great Ramita art. Because hmm. that was even, you know, 10 years ago. And I think yeah. I think that's great art. Yeah, see, and I forget that, that, yeah, that was him. Yeah, and it just it just doesn't fit Batman in particular, I think. Um, the best sequences in here, I thought, were Batman and Catwoman fighting outside Arkham in the rain against whoever this is, Solomon Grundy and some other big giant dude who I don't know who that is. Um, but, but I thought those sequences were pretty good. That being said, this is a really well-written comic. <laughs> it is, actually, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it keeps on going back and forth between Batman and Catwoman fighting these two and in the Batcave, the rest of the Bat family, minus Dick Grayson, fighting uh, Thomas Wayne, the Batman from Earth whatever. And it just keeps going back and forth. And the whole, th- and overall, it's being narrated by Batman, correct? Yeah, it's being narrated by Batman. And I guess one of my moments that makes me feel a little icky is that this is this narration is incredibly important. Mm-hmm. This narration kind of provides the context. This is the hey, here's what's been going on for the last, you know, since nightmares, since yeah. issue like 60. Like here's here's what's been going on for the last 15 issues and it's done as a narration over some battle sequences. Which is classic Tom King, and I think that that's the, it's so well written, and it was very compelling as a read. Like learning, you know, why he was in the snow when Cat found him, and 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 you know he knew, like he knew that Bane. This explains that when he punched 
Tim Drake, you know, 10 issues ago on that roof, mm-hmm. that was actually a non-verbal signal that the Bat family has. Like if Batman ever punches one of his kids, that means bail and resort <laughs> to a hidden communication because that means that people are watching us and I need people to think I've lost it, resort to a hidden line of communication. Mm-hmm. You know, th- that's important. That's... yeah. And it's just a bummer that all of that is kind of done. Like, these are going to be really important issues when this whole thing is said and done. It's a bummer to me that it's two issues by an artist who hasn't done any of the run prior to this and doesn't seem to reflect the tone of the series prior to this. It it just, yeah, it's a bummer to me. Yeah, you're right. It does. That's what it is. It does throw the the visual tone off, Um, especially because and this wasn't intended, I'm sure, but. Like when Batwoman, for instance, hits hits Thomas Wayne Batman in the face. Oh God! Just yeah. the way his lower lip juts out below her fist, it's, it's just it looks like something out of Mad Magazine or Looney Tunes or something. <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah. oh, the whole face sinks in. <laughs> and yeah, it's, it's just like that type of cartoonish hyperviolence hasn't been a part of this series at any point. Yeah, yeah. Plus, I thought it was silly and. It makes sense later, but at first I thought it was silly. I was like, you know, even though this is the Bat Family, how are they doing so well against Thomas Wayne Batman? So, but while who is I was like the ultimate Batman. While I was reading this, Justin, because I was I had to work a double shift on Tuesday, so I thought, listen, I'm working all day. I can read a comic book right before close. And Justin said, Roman tried to tell me that the whole Bat Family, Tim, Damien, Batwoman, Batgirl, Cassandra Kane the signal, the huntress, and Batgirl, he, Roman was saying that Thomas Wayne would be able to beat them. And Justin was like, but it's a numbers game. There are seven of them versus one. So let's deal. Let's put the gauntlet down. Let's figure this shit out. We, I, I would have to, I think, side with Justin in that seven against one is just those odds are slanted against Thomas Wayne. Yeah, yeah, you would you would think so, especially cause, especially when, like, you know, some of those people are, are Damien and Tim and, and Orphan and Batgirl, who are all fantastic fighters. I mean, oh, yeah. I mean, especially Orphan. I mean, she's already, I think Batman even said once that, especially as she matures, she's like the most dangerous of them all. Right. <laughs> but I was thinking, you know, they've already established that this Batman, Thomas Wayne, he's older, he's more experienced than Bruce, and he's more ruthless, and he beat Bruce, his own son. So I was thinking, you know, this this is like But the, I think that Bruce said that he let him beat him. Oh yeah, this, I think right? I think he did. I yeah. think he did. But still I thought, you know, it wouldn't be this easy to 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 take him down. I mean I was wondering why is he letting them hit, hit him so much? Right. Because he is. I mean he's been presented as as if he was ultimate universe Batman. Like he's the ultimate Batman. Um if nothing else, in a way, numbers game is in terms of experience. He's got more experience than Bruce Wayne. You know, he's like, what, 20, 30 years older? That's true. I would give this issue a 7.5. I think it was written better than that. I wanna, I'm want i almost compelled to give it an 8. But I think it's a well-done issue in terms of the story, and it's putting everything together, and I love this series. But the art really brings it down for me and I can't really even process it in the same way that I processed the other ones because it's just it it doesn't have this sort of the unnameable quality that the Tom King run has had to me yeah yeah I agree I mean I mean the writing 
I mean, the way Thomas Wayne turns the tables on them is brilliant. The way Bruce's narration, and we find out a little twist with part of his plan that I, I didn't even suspect it. And yeah, I should have, because okay. I love that character. So let's clarify for a second. <laughs> what was the twist that Thomas Wayne does to get out of that? Oh, um, uh, uh, he and I don't know if he knew this was going to happen. I got the sense that he did. Eventually, they're debating um, what to do with him. And Huntress finally says, oh, fuck it, for Alfred. And she shoots a crossbow at him. Thomas Wayne catches the catches the crossbow and just uses the takes this momentum and stabs it into Tim Drake's chest. <laughs> mm, right. um, which I thought, okay, that's cool. That's a bat. That's an evil Batman move. And then what was the next <laughs> thing that you were like? Because... I also really liked this, but had... I, I did. Yeah, I love this huge spoiler here. Um, Bane's tur- been in charge of Gotham. Yeah, Bane's been in charge of Gotham, and uh, somehow he had, you know, he had the Riddler, everybody, the Riddler and the Joker, like, under his control, you supposedly. Know, Professor Pig. Yeah. yeah. Everybody has been a sort of police officer, a criminal police officer for Bane in this city lately. Yeah. Except the twist here was, in a flashback, we see the Joker turn on the Riddler, and it's not, and it wasn't actually the Joker. And at first, even th- even then, when that happened, I thought, well, of course, yeah, somehow Batman can't made a deal with the Joker because Joker's a force of chaos. It's not even the Joker; it's Clayface. Yeah, I re- <laughs> all along it's been Clayface, and and I loved it. And I was also so amazed because I love Clayface. I love the Clayface storylines in Me Detective too. a couple years ago. Yeah, that was. Great. And I still didn't clue in Batman the Animated Series. Clayface is one of my favorite episodes. <sighs> Boy, I'm I'm still I'm still gonna give it. I think I'm still gonna give it an eight. Because I really like the the turnabouts and and the surprises. I'm working through my negativity. I'm sorry. And I have to, but I have to ask, but I have to ask. There, there's a after next Bat versus Bane. Then there's two pages with Harvey naked Harvey Bullock running around in the street with like kind of Joker makeup on and a big target painted on his chest. And he sees the Legion of Doom symbol in the skies. What? And he's just singing. Yeah. Well, what, first of all, that was by how did Mitch how Garrett's, did you interpret that? Yeah, yeah, it was Mitch Garrett's. which is great. Um... I think that it was just trying to tie this into the larger DC universe and say that in Gotham they're seeing this, you know, dark, the the Legion of Doom symbol appear in the sky like we saw at the end of Nightwing. I think that it's uh, an attempt to tie it in with that and also sort of reinforce that the cops are useless. Mm-hmm. Like Bullock is... I don't... I mean, obviously, I'm just sort of making up my own opinion. Yeah, well, it, I, got, I, yeah I, got, I got all that. I agree. But what happened to Bullock? I think that, like... With Bane having taken over the cops, the cops are just kind of on the the real police officers are just kind of on the run or just useless. I bet, like, did he get tied up and have its target painted on him a couple issues ago, like in the first issue of City of Bane or something? I, I oh, did he? Maybe, maybe, but like Mitch Garris did a backup in that one as well. Um, yeah, I I didn't put I, a lot of thought into it. Cause I'm it just, just concerned about Harvey. I mean, yeah. is he okay? You know, what I love is <laughs> Braden really likes the character Harvey Bullock. I'd love to talk about it on the Has he on gone nuts? <laughs> I think he's just sort of losing it because all order has gone away and Gordon's disappeared and mm. just people are dying and his city is lost and he's just smoking cigars out in the rain now. I'm worried about Harvey. I love that about you. <laughs> Before we get out of here, I read Flash Forward number two. Mm. How was it? Not nearly as good as number one, oh. but I am I, I am interested in the Tempest Fusionaut character, the big reveal at the end <laughs> of this one. I do love that name. I do. Uh, the big reveal at the end of this one is that on some reality, somewhere, Jai 
the fucking Wally West oh, kids Wally are West alive. Kids are alive. Okay. And I don't think that those characters were good characters who have ever existed. But I think that <laughs> Flash Forward is working towards bringing Wally West's kids back. Okay. And then I also read Spider Man number two by J J Abrams, Henry Abrams, hmm. and Sarah Pacelli. And I still really like this book. There's some problems that I have with it, but I also it's almost like an old man's Peter Parker book. And, <laughs> yeah. You know, his kids taking over for him and art's gorgeous. Story's really good. Roman, how was the last issue of the Island of Dr. Moreau? Number two of two. It was good. This is, this was a really good two issue adaptation. I like literary adaptations. They, they, a lot of the times they disappoint. This doesn't disappoint. And the art is cool. The art by, uh, Gabriel, Rodriguez. Gabriel Rodriguez. Yeah. yeah. And adapted by him and Ted Adams. The only thing I, and it's a very, it's a very uh, tiny little point because it doesn't, it's still a good ending. But I, it's just saying, I want to be nitpicky. I'm sorry for everyone, but I want to read this issue. I, I read the first one. Okay. And you said, I don't, don't spoil the final pages for me. Okay. I won't, I won't, no spoiler. It, it, it's, it's a good ending, but it's more hopeful than the original book's ending. That ending originally was, was not hopeful. This one, it wasn't upbeat. This one has has hope. Okay. But they did change the ending of the original story. I've always wanted to watch the movie. Never have. Never oh. read the book. Never engaged with it at all, which is why I've been excited about this adaptation. The first issue had a pretty great write-up page at the end hmm. that yeah. talked about why they were doing what they did and everything. Did you read the, the yeah. end? Yeah. And did it at all elucidate as to why they would have changed the ending? Yeah, they, they talk about that. And, and for some weird reason, I read the... T- text page to the end before I read the issue. Roman um, and yeah, they talked about that, just how they just wanted to to be more hopeful at hmm. the end. That, and, and oh, and the other thing they changed is the main character, they changed the gender of the main character who right. arrives on the island. And I really liked that they which, did Which, yeah, worked really well. I think that's actually works better that way. And then before we get out of here, I see that on the stack of comics that you've got, you've got Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen number four, which was a last week book. No, it was this week. That was this week, yeah. I haven't read number three or number four. Oh. How was this? It was a lot of fun. It's still a fun series. Um, the Like the first issue, the different kind of jumps around with kind of some different times in Jimmy's life. I mean, close times, but a little bit different, like one stories in Gotham and stuff. These have all congealed. So it's uh, it's all it's all a little more linear now. Okay. And it all makes sense. So the first issue I really enjoyed, but I was a little confused on points. It, it's all, It all comes together. Okay. And it's still a really fun series. It's very funny. I think it, I've really I enjoyed the first two issues because it was kind of funny, but um, I think it ca- falls into a category of like, do I care? Hmm. And I would like to care. I care, but I've always liked the character of Jimmy Olsen. Yeah. Yeah, and all the versions the the nineteen forties Jimmy Olsen the the the. Animated series, you know, the comic books. Yeah. I, I love them, too. I just, I'll, yeah, I don't know. I think I have a weird, I have a weird thing about Chip Zdarsky and Matt Fraction. I like them mm. both a lot, but also it feels a little bit like masturbatory when I read their stuff. To the, I don't know. I'm going to cut this part out. <laughs> um, hey, listen, everybody. Episode 152, thanks for hanging out with us for an hour and a half or an hour and 15 minutes or whatever this becomes. Um... We really appreciate everyone coming to the store. Ryan, thank you for asking us to read Nightwing. Um, we were hoping to find those questions that everyone wrote for us at the live podcast because that was the best. But we also look forward to having some voicemails uh, come in or, or emails come in. Um, we had some last week. Like I said, Django is the baron of phone voicemail things. So um, 
next week we'll have some of those. But you can get a get a hold of us through voicemail, or you can um, just email us your voice recording. The phone number is one six one nine six six three seven three three six. Please call us. We love it. We haven't totally gotten perfect about um, actually checking those voicemails yet because we spent a year and a half never getting them, and now that we're getting them, it's hard to remember to get them. Yeah. But I suppose if people, even if you have come up with a question while you're in the store, just like yeah, write just, it down, and, you know, or just throw it on the table. Talk to us there or whatever. <laughs> yeah, we love it. Um, but you can also do what Andrew did last week. You can record a voice memo on your phone or on your computer, and then you can attach that voice memo as an email to us and send it. It's info at thecomicsplace.com. I think that's all the housekeeping we got. Thanks for everybody. Uh, thanks, Justin and Django, for not being here. We love you both. We miss you. Roman, thank I, I, you for actually being here. Well, thank thanks for having me. I And I think, I think Justin, I'm going to speak for him. I think Justin will be here next week. You think so? I think so. Oh, I yeah. hope so. <laughs> let's, Do you actually think so? I think so. Do you know let's, something? Let's, let's, yeah. I don't know anything, no. Oh, but, okay. but You never know with Justin. He's a beautiful let's m- lean on uh, him. miracle. <laughs> Um, everyone tell Justin to be on the podcast next week. Come in, say, Justin, be on the podcast next week. We miss you. That'd be awesome. And in the meantime, thanks for coming to our store. Thanks for hanging out with us. Roman, Mm -hmm. I love getting to hang out with you for an hour and a half and do this. Thanks so much for hanging out with me solo. It was great. And and, and I got my days all mixed up. I'm on painkillers and I got confused. I realized I said to you this evening, I was like, I thought we were doing it Thursday. And then later on when I was out, like driving around i was like wait today is thursday yeah i was a little confused when you said that uh i when i brought it up to you i you seemed a little bit like oh i guess i could do it tonight and then i was like i I thought that we had said we were gonna do it tonight but i also know that you have had surgery and are on almost as many drugs as i am (laughs) i'm just not i'm just not adjusted to it yeah um thank you everyone for listening uh we'll see you all next week for episode 153 and as always 153 keep watching the skies i'm jeff and uh roman i hope your balls feel better soon thanks i'm roman yeah i hope my balls feel better soon too